I have a terrific headache. These are often given as the last words of Franklin D. Roosevelt, the 32nd President of the United States, shortly before he collapsed and died as a result of an intracerebral haemorrhage. It's also something I myself have said the morning after the general broadcast Christmas party. Headaches are incredibly common, and we've probably all had one, but what separates the life-threatening from the benign? How do we differentiate the patient that has a simple tension headache from the one with the life-threatening condition? They're often seen as a minefield, and aside from asking about the thunderclap onset, many students and clinicians can be stuck for what questions to ask to help navigate their way through it. That's why this month we're taking a look at headaches. We'll talk about separating the primary headaches from the secondary, as well as some of the treatment options that we can offer as ambulance clinicians. So we'll try and make this an interesting and engaging podcast, and not one that's too mind-numbing. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh. I'm Simon. And there's no Alex this week. Ironically, he's in bed with a migraine. So um, <laughs> it'll be it'll be up to you and me, Simon, to uh, to hold down the fort and uh, and have a chat about headaches this week. Are we doing that just because Alex has a migraine, or uh, was this? Yeah, it's, it's very topical. <laughs> and any any excuse to just get some peace and quiet. We might actually uh, cut our recording time down without him uh, dragging things out and taking us off off tangent. I think I'm the waffler of the group. <laughs> So this month we've elected to talk about headaches, and it was you leading on the topic this month, Simon. So, so why headaches? Why are we why are we talking about it? So this is a topic that I don't think gets uh, enough credit or enough worry sometimes from ambulance clinicians. I saw a news article last year that was basically a paramedic talking about uh, being called to someone that they transport to hospital that couldn't be bothered to walk to a shop to buy paracetamol for their headache, and it kind of made me think. Well. On one hand, if it's a headache that can be fixed with paracetamol, you shouldn't be conveying them to hospital. Or on the other hand, if it's a concerning enough presentation to warrant hospital, then it actually could be something serious. And, you know, we know that headaches can be quite serious. So I thought it was a good topic for us to look at to kind of delve into what headaches are not that concerning and what headaches we should be worried about. And it certainly feels like a bit of a minefield. Certainly, uh, the, the sections I looked at, you really could go down a rabbit hole, couldn't you? So there's definitely an element of this that we need to go into enough depth to do it justice. But equally, sometimes we need to keep things simple and, and recognise that uh, perhaps we don't need to spend too much time on primary autonomic cephalgias and things like that. Definitely agree with that. Like you know, I think the most the, the primary responsibility of the emergency clinician is ruling out your worrying secondary causes, actively diagnosing common primaries, and then if it's anything else, kind of referring on. And I don't think we have to get too bogged down into the nitty gritties as long as we're aware of the red flags, which I think is going to be the primary um, focus of this episode. Excellent. So let's get started. So as always a good place to start is probably with a definition and two terms that we're going to be using quite a lot in this podcast are primary and secondary headaches. So the majority of headache disorders are primary headaches and indeed 80% of headaches that present to emergency departments are primary in nature. But what does primary mean? 
Well, essentially, primary headaches are the headaches that don't have an underlying pathological cause. So if you took away the pain from the headache, there's no problem. Whereas a secondary headache is pain in the head that's occurring from a pathological cause. So there's some other reason why you have the headache. So that could be a tumour, that could be a bleed on the brain. We'll come on to talk about the, the huge number of secondary headaches that there are, but but essentially that's the main distinction. Primary, the headache is the main problem and there's no underlying pathological event. And secondary headaches, the pain is a symptom of something else going on. And as Simon said earlier, our responsibility as emergency clinicians isn't always to give the patient a hard and fast diagnosis. In fact, a lot of the time, that's something that can't even be done for quite some time. But our main responsibility as emergency clinicians is to differentiate the serious from the benign. And often that comes down to recognising whether there's a potential secondary headache in front of us or whether it's more likely to be primary in nature. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this podcast. And that differentiation between the serious and the benign can be quite challenging. And as always, that's where a really comprehensive history and physical examination comes comes in. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about secondary headaches in a second. And, and we'll talk about the red flags in that history and talk through about the, the various types of secondary headache. And, and then we'll talk about primary headaches and, and what kind of histories they will typically present with. But general history advice, Simon, as always, isn't it, is ask open questions to your patients. Try not to lead them. So probably one of the most common headache red flags when, when people come to take histories is is sudden onset about whether or not, you know, oh, I feel like I've been hit over the head with a brick or hit over the head with a baseball bat, something like that, which is a really common red flag most people are uh, are used to. But we need to we need to be quite clever in the way that we're taking history and, and make sure we're not leading our patient and make sure we're not putting words in in their mouth because their choice to use descriptors like that is what is important, not whether or not they choose the word brick or baseball bat uh, in that history. So we need to listen to the intention behind what they're trying to say to us rather than trying to lead them. Really important um, because I actually found that when I first moved off the road and went into ED, Yes, there's a, a certain argument. I'm more likely to see a higher percentage of severe headaches and potentially worse headaches in the ED than I, than someone who is, say, working in primary care. That being said, I was still scanning quite a lot of people, and I think it's because of how I asked the questions. I think you can very easily lead patients down a severe avenue when it comes to headaches. So, yeah, 100%. If you're going to ask questions, try to keep them open try to not put words in the patient's mouth as as with any as with any uh, presentation and that could be something that takes quite a while to uh, to figure out in your own practice so we're going to ask those open questions we're going to listen to what the patient's saying we're going to use our usual tools like socrates or old cards opqrst to help focus in our questioning on what type of pain the patient's experiencing and really elucidate a, a very clear description of, of, uh, of what they're going through. And then obviously we're going to be asking them about past medical history, medications and all of those usual things because uh, there's definitely things in the patient's past medical history or their risk factors uh, that will be red flags in the context of headaches. So an example would be patients that are aged over 50 if they've got a new type of headache or a new onset headache. 
this would be considered a red flag. 50 is a fairly reasonable time frame for you to have figured out what benign health problems you're likely to experience in your life. And so it's reasonable to assume that people that are going to have less concerning primary headaches, people that are going to have cluster headaches or migraines will probably have had their first presentation of these before the age of 50. So if we've got an acute presentation after the age of 50, it doesn't mean that it's definitely something sinister, but the risk is definitely heading that way. We're starting to develop pathology at this point and uh, and, and so we're going to take that patient group a, a, a bit more seriously. So we, we want to elucidate those red flags, which we'll come on to talk about in more detail when we when we discuss secondary headache i think it's really important as well that as part of our history we explore the patient's ideas concerns and expectations which is something we talk about a lot but this is a presentation where i think it's even more important you'd be surprised how many patients worry that when they have a headache or a reoccurring headache especially that they have a brain tumor however i think it's worth mentioning that an isolated headache with no other symptoms and no neurology as the first presentation of a brain tumour is exceedingly rare. In fact, BASH, which is the British Association for the Study of Headaches, state that in those with a normal neurological exam, the chance of tumour being the cause of their symptoms is no greater than someone who doesn't present with headaches at all. So I think that's quite reassuring. But it's really important that we understand what the patient's worried about so that we can then help them move on and help them get some treatment or reassure them that it's not concerning features, especially when we're dealing with primary headaches. Lots of these patients with chronic primary headache type conditions like migraines and some of the things we're going to talk about later, they'll be quite used to managing their condition, won't they? So if they have called for help, if they have presented to us, it's really important that we understand what's different about this time because that in itself might be a concerning feature that we need to look into a little bit deeper. We've talked a bit about history. Let's briefly cover some examination, which most people are going to be quite familiar with. I guess there's the usual caveat of don't get completely focused on neuro, assess your patient holistically. There may be a need for us to examine other systems. But for this one, I think we're going to talk about neuro exams. So Simon, what kind of things do we need to make sure that we're including in every headache workup from a neuro exam perspective? So as always, if our patient is unwell, then we want to do an A to E assessment and manage uh, life-threatening features as we find them. But if we've got a kind of moderately well or well patient, then we might think about doing a more systems examination. So as always, probably some cardiovascular and respiratory, but the neuro exam is probably going to be the main focus. As part of that, we're going to do a set of um, OBS, which is going to look for temperature because fever is really important. We want to look at our cranial nerves and as part of that, a vision assessment. We're going to do uh, an examination of the face where we might look uh, and palpate the sinuses for tenderness. Uh, We might want to look for the presence of autonomic symptoms, which we'll cover later as part of our primary headache set. We're going to think about tenderness over the temples of the hairline. Again, we'll cover this later. We need to consider fundoscopy. Now, this is a skill that many emergency clinicians omit from their examination purely for for competence of doing it. I've only recently kind of brought it into mind. If you're comfortable recognising the presence of papilledema it's really relevant, but obviously it does require equipment that you may not have access to. And I, I'm unsure kind of how 
significant it is and needs to be in pre-hospital care. When I talk to uh, a lot of neurologists and headache specialists, most of them actually say that they very rarely change their clinical opinion based upon examination. And it's more something that they do looking for focal neurology and because they have to document it as opposed to um, something that's really going to change their plan. Most of the time, the information you need is in the history. So it's worth keeping that in mind. And the final parts are power assessment, sensation assessment, and coordination and reflexes, which is all part of a standard neurological examination. You've already covered fundoscopy, which is perhaps not the most conventional thing taught to paramedics. The other thing people might think about is reflexes, Simon. So I guess the majority of this is taught on modern paramedic degrees in the UK now, but actually finding a tendon hammer on an ambulance is uh, is another thing. So um, I'm going to play that part and go, really? Do we need reflexes if we've done all that other stuff? Yeah, again, I mean, it's it's you know it's just part of a comprehensive neurological examination. It's looking for kind of subtle neurology that you you, you don't want to miss, but at the same time, the chances are that you're going to have more sinister focal neurology. You know, things like seizures or weakness. You know, are going to be the features we're really looking for. So. Yeah, if you haven't got a tendon hammer, then, you know, if you've got a cheap stethoscope, you can uh, use that. But uh, there's no way I'm using my Lippmann cardiology to uh, to smash someone's knee to test a patellar reflex. Okay, so we've covered the uh, the neurological examination. Now let's talk about some of these conditions a bit more in depth. So as we said, we're going to talk about secondary headaches first and relate that to the red flags that we need to look for in the history. Let's start with thunderclap onset. Simon, do you want to talk us through the meaning of that? And for those that don't already know, what we're really concerned about in in thunderclap onset headaches? So a thunderclap onset is one of the things that's most often documented in notes incorrectly. And it's often the reason for a lot of inappropriate imaging and a lot of inappropriate referrals. So thunderclap literally means a maximal headache within five minutes, but it's normally much quicker. It's normally within a minute. So putting it simply, it's an excruciating headache of instantaneous onset. And as we kind of said earlier, patients often describe this in their own words of, I was fine one minute and then I felt like someone smashed me over the back of the head with a brick or a baseball bat or a cricket bat. It's significantly disabling, significantly painful. This isn't like, oh, I've got a sudden headache all of it, you know, but I'm fine. This is really, really significant maximal pain. I had one patient that I remember described his, that described the pain of his headache like being punched in the head at the pub and so I was trying to understand whether or not he meant that was a thunderclap onset. So I was saying, oh, w- w- did it come on really, really quickly? Because he looked medically very well. And he he didn't mean that it had come on like he'd been punched. He meant that it feels like he's been punched in the head, but actually it's been growing and coming on all day. So that's probably something that we really need to get down and and, and really need to be very explicit in how we understand that. How I've rephrased this now in my practice is um, I always say to patients, so your headache now is really bad. When you first notice your headache, how long has it taken until it got to this point? And often patients will go, oh, it was about an hour or about two hours. Fine. 
in which case it's not a thunderclap headache. So just find a way of wording it without leading the patient, you know, yourself. Now, thunderclap headache itself is just a symptom. So actually, there's lots of causes of thunderclap headache that we need to consider. The bottom line is, is that any thunderclap headache should be conveyed to hospital and should be investigated. There are benign causes as well as serious causes, but we should never put it down to a benign cause until we have ruled out the serious. And normally the serious can either be vascular or non-vascular in origin. So some of the most common things that we think about when we consider vascular are subarachnoid hemorrhages. So a subarachnoid hemorrhage is probably the most well-known cause of a thunderclap headache. And it actually accounts for about 11 to 25% of all thunderclap headache presentations. It's atypical for a subarachnoid hemorrhage headache to last less than two hours. However, you do need to be aware of headaches that settle in 15 to 45 minutes. Because while this makes subarachnoid hemorrhage less likely, it is possible that it's a sentinel bleed. Now, sentinel bleeds are small bleeds from an aneurysm that self-resolve and can be a precursor for a larger subarachnoid hemorrhage down the line. The evidence of this is debated a lot of it is retrospective, small qualitative studies from patients who kind of go, well, actually, yeah, I did have a really bad headache a few weeks ago. Um, and there may be some bias in how they provide their data, but just be aware of this potential alarm feature. So then that would be those patients that are seemingly fine by the time the ambulance has got to them, but their initial history, they say to you, oh yeah, it definitely came on. It was like a thunderbolt going through my head. Those patients should still go to hospital for a scan, even though they're fine when we're seeing them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As 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 I said, you know, a minute ago, all, all thunderclap onset headaches should be conveyed to hospital. So as I previously mentioned, thunderclap can be benign. So there are things such as exertional thunderclap headaches and headaches that come on at the point of orgasm or during sexual intercourse. And these are benign. However, they can also be related to a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So it's really important that we never label them as benign until we've ruled out the subarach. Uh, what about patients with sudden onset headache and neck pain, Son? And what are we thinking in those? So again, 50% of subarachs, the only presenting feature might be headache, but you can sometimes get neck pain with this or reduced conscious level collapse or seizure. But the other thing we need to think about with sudden onset neck pain and a thunderclap headache is a carotid or vertebral artery dissection. So this is a relatively uncommon presentation, but it's the most common cause of stroke in younger patients and has been seen after things like chiropractic manipulation of the neck or just spontaneously. And it's basically, we've we've covered dissections before in our aortic dissection podcast. And this is basically the same pathology, but, you know, in our either our carotid artery or our vertebral artery as the primary arteries that supply blood to our brain. That's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Carrying on then with thunderclap causes, uh, another common cause is a venous sinus thrombosis. And this is basically a blood clot in the venous system that drains blood from the brain. 
Thunderclaps are the majority of headache onsets in these, but you can occasionally have slowly progressive ones. They often have focal neurological symptoms or signs, and you often can have seizures with them and weakness, but that doesn't always have to be present. And the risk factors for this are anything that causes coagulopathy. So our older age patients, our vasculopathic patients, any underlying malignancy, which we know can cause increased risk of clots, pregnancy, oral contraceptive pill users, or a past medical history of venous thromboembolism, so DVT or PE. Rarely, thunderclap headaches can be caused by CNS infection. However, I've personally never seen a, a thunderclap onset headache as a CNS infection. It's usually more slowly progressive. I don't know about you, Josh. Have you seen a sudden onset headache as like a meningitis or an encephalitis? No. No, no, neither have I. I, I. I was actually really surprised when I was doing the research for this podcast that actually intracranial infection was listed in the thunderclap headaches um, because it's not something I would associate uh, with that, but obviously it's just worth knowing about. And there's a few other conditions, but I think we've covered the main ones there. So that's thunderclap headaches in a nutshell. Seeing as you've started a poorly executed segue into CNS infections, then do you want to go on and talk about CNS infection. So probably what we're talking about is is meningitis, viral encephalitis uh, as the main ones, plus other CNS infections. So how are they going to present? So the CNS infections, as you said, meningitis, viral encephalitis, or uh, intracranial abscess, we need to be aware of all of them. So meningitis obviously is infection, inflammation of the meninges. Uh, Encephalitis is uh, infection of the brain. But they often have overlapping features it's not always easy to differentiate them without kind of further imaging in hospital so the things we want to think about are associated fever so this is one of the most common symptoms so headache and fever we want to think about neck stiffness and nuchal rigidity so this is actual like meningeal irritation so these are our things like our Koenig's and Brzezinski signs Whilst they're not very good at ruling out a diagnosis of CNS infection, ruling in meningitis is actually they're, they're quite they're quite good for that. We want to think about people with puperic or petechial non-blanching rashes, a flu-like prodrome, a headache that is progressively getting worse, any seizures, focal neurology, and kind of changes in, in abnormal behaviours really important that we identify these because we can do some management pre-hospital we obviously need to think about identification rapid transport to hospital and then intravenous antibiotics probably in the form of uh, benzyl penicillin and fluid resuscitation and obviously if we've got a reduced level of consciousness then we're going to think about airway and obviously if needed oxygenation as well these can be really tricky, can't they? Because a lethargic, slightly photophobic headache is not particularly unique, is it? Especially when we come on to talk about migraines later, there's there's probably a huge amount of risk and crossover in the presentation of Venn diagrams between uh, a, a sort of meningitic patient and a, and a patient who sounds like they've got a bit of a migraine. So I guess this is where our clinical gestalt and our otherwise really clear infection screens are looking for fevers, looking for subtle tachycardias and things like that really come in, isn't it? Even things like vomiting and stuff, you know, they, they can present with benign cause of headache. And fever and, and headache could just be, you know, a minor headache could just be a viral illness or the flu. That being said, my advice to anyone is if you're in doubt, treat it as the worst case scenario 
give your antibiotics. It's what we do in hospital. And I've, I feel a lot more comfortable with that now working in hospital than I did pre-hospitally. I would give antibiotics to someone with a headache and fever who's unwell and then find out it's a viral flu later and stop the antibiotics and deal with it. But these people will probably get a CT. They probably will get a lumbar puncture. And then once we've got all those test results back and a respiratory PCR panel of influenza A is positive, then we can step the treatment down when we know that the blood cultures are normal, when we know that the LP is normal. It's an easy decision then once we've ruled out the serious. But I guarantee to you that most ED clinicians and in-hospital medics will carry on this treatment until they've ruled it out. So don't worry about giving the antibiotics. If you think it could be meningitis, start them, is my take-home point. That's a that's a really, really good point. And there's definitely patients early on in my practice that I didn't give antibiotics to, but still took to hospital that I now would definitely give Benpen to. Certainly when you've got a bit more experience and see see how often you guys are giving antibiotics to query potential CNS infections in hospital, it becomes far less of a uh, of a big thing. You know, to, to to me drawing Ben Penn up and giving it was was it was a really, really big thing to do back then. But but it's kind of done all the time in ED departments just in case because of the the relative risk of missing it. So yeah, I I absolutely second that. Don't worry about it. There's there's a good chance that you might be wrong, and if you are, it's not a problem because uh, the time that you're right, it's really far more worthwhile. I think IV antibiotics is one of them drugs that kind of, as a paramedic, was like, oh, this is really serious. But actually, as soon as you start to work in ED, it's something that's dropped daily by nurses again and again and again, and it's so common. In fact, my wife, who was an ICU nurse, laughed at me when I told her how worried I used to be pre-hospitally drawing up Ben Pen. She was like, it's something I give all day, every day, antibiotics, IV, and she, she couldn't understand why it was so significant. Yeah, so it's uh, it's one of them things I think it's just our perspective on. I, I think it's just that unfamiliarity, isn't it? If If you're working in a situation where people aren't giving it all the time, it, it's it's going to breed more unfamiliarity and, and it's going to lead to fewer and fewer people giving it. Whereas uh, if we just normalise giving the Ben Pen based on the um, on the risk profile, so suddenly that that little concern that we've built up in our mind uh, is less of an issue. So let's move on then and, and talk about some of the other secondary causes of headaches. Something I wanted to talk about was carbon monoxide poisoning. So hopefully most people will be reasonably comfortable picking up something like this. So this is potentially going to present as, as regular headaches, possibly with a, a key familiar element to them. So it will be lots of headaches in the same household or potentially the same workplace. If you you go to work, develop a headache and, and come back and and then being outside of that environment, the headache starts to wear off. We're going to be looking for slow onset headaches, potentially with or without confusion. And it's important to bear in mind that carbon monoxide poisoning won't show up on SATs probes unless they're specially designed to, to pick up carbon monoxide levels. So it's hopefully one that's quite rare, but it's uh, common enough that it's worth considering and having in the back of our mind. Do you want to talk about Sol? Yeah, so SOL is kind of a generic term for a space-occupying lesion, which basically could be a lot of things that could be an abscess. But what we more commonly associate with SOL is obviously is a tumour. So despite what I said earlier about um, headache being 
or, or isolated headache being the uh, unlikely to be a tumour, it can present with a progressive headache. But the f- key features of it are it happens and it reoccurs every single day. This isn't an episodic event. It's worse in the morning, and that's because we've been lying flat, which is kind of raising our ICP during sleep. And then it eases during the day because we're upright. It's kind of a diffuse, constant, non-pulsating pain, and it's often associated with other symptoms. So as we said earlier, nausea and vomiting. Nausea and vomiting is a really useless symptom, isn't it, for, for headaches? Bearing in mind that it comes up in all of these presentations, both benign and serious. We might get a change in behaviour. So what I have seen in my emergency department when I've had a patient with an undiagnosed brain CA is the family go, they're just not their normal self. They're just acting weird. They're acting strangely. They're becoming a little bit more aggressive or they're confused. Their memory's not quite right. And it's not usually, or at least not at the start, it's not a conscious level change. It's just a really subtle change in their personality. So just be on the lookout for that. Later on, it can affect an ultra-conscious level. And in fact, a first presentation of seizure is probably the most likely diagnostic indicator. So if you have a a progressive headache with starting to develop new seizures, that's kind of worrying. And then obviously our typical cancer red flags, such as weight loss, night sweats, or new focal neurology on examination and papilledema found on fundoscopy. That's kind of tumour. And then if we're thinking about things like abscess, then we might have uh, associated infection uh, symptoms like fever, as we talked about in the uh, CNS infection section. That, that's reminded me of something that, that might be worth clarifying. So when we're talking about focal neurology for a lot of these cases, we're basically saying headache plus focal neurology is concerning. But I think it's worth specifying that photophobia and phonophobia, so not wanting to uh, be in a bright room, not wanting to be near loud noises, doesn't count as focal neurology. They're very much sort of softer, softer neurological signs. So you you can have headaches presenting with both of those symptoms and that not to be concerning. When we're talking about focal neurology, we're really talking about, you know, lack of fine or gross motor coordination, visual changes. Often it's it's loss of sensation or reduction in uh, in, in sensory or, or motor function. And and whilst we're kind of talking about that, I'm interested to know your thoughts on this, Simon, because I was really trying to find a reference for this because it's something that stuck with me that was told by a consultant once when it comes to assessing headaches, but I I, I can't find a, a clear reference for it. And that's if you have patients presenting with positive neurological symptoms, so they are having added experiences, i.e. they have got visual changes or odd sensations that is often less concerning than those patients presenting with negative neurological signs so that would be actual loss of function loss of sensation so an absence in in vision or a reduction in vision uh, or, or an absence in hearing something like that is that is that something you've heard before so like i wouldn't you know be like oh this is absolute but it is something i've definitely heard of and it is something that i consider when i think about symptoms so if we think about migraine versus stroke for example yeah you're right so we think about floaters in the eye versus 
a loss of vision, a loss of vision is going to be much more concerning to us than something new in our vision most of the time. But there are still certain positive features like flashing lights can be benign but can also be quite serious. So it's not something that I would say is an absolute rule, but I definitely agree that, you know, there are things that lean more towards migraine and there are things that need more towards concerning features. And that's definitely something you can think about. The, the, the Is this positive symptoms or is this a loss of symptoms or loss of function is a better way to word it. And then finally, let's talk about giant cell arthritis and glaucoma. Giant cell arthritis has another name, which is temporal arthritis. It's exactly the same condition. And this is basically patients over the age of normally 55, but I lower that to kind of 50, as some uh, places recommend. You are very, very, very unlikely to get it in someone under the age of 50. So it's kind of as soon as a patient is under 50, I disregard it in my practice. Uh, That might catch me out one day, but I know most people it's never caught out. So a patient over the age of 50 who presents with new regular headaches. And the kind of cardinal features are that this is a vasculitis of their temporal artery, so inflammation of their temporal artery. And that then affects the the blood supply and it causes, can cause visual loss or visual changes. Uh, It can cause pain in the jaw, especially claudication when eating. And it causes temporal tenderness. So this is why it's really important to examine the patient's face. So if you palpate over the temporal arteries, it might be tender. They might be uh, prominent and pulsatile sometimes, but not always. And a lot of patients will tell you, especially older females will tell you, oh, when I brush my hair. Yeah, I was going to say that. That's the classic history, isn't it? Noting it when you brush your hair. Yeah, so that's sometimes the, the cardinal symptom. And these patients, basically, they need a large course of steroids and they need some blood. So we would do like a CRP and an ESR and then they they need steroids. And the reason they need steroids is because if we don't do anything about this, it will progress and they could eventually lose their, their sight. So it's really important we identify it. Now, those can be done in primary care. I do know GPs that will start a patient on steroids, take some bloods and then send them off. I personally feel that that should be done in secondary care urgently. So it doesn't necessarily need to go to ED, but I would be referring it pre-hospitally to an ambulatory clinic for same-day bloods and starting someone on steroids. My personal practice, don't know how you feel about that, Josh. To be honest, it's it's so far out of my regular sphere of competence now that if I was working on a truck and I went to it, then I would, I would probably take them to ED because of that. And and that's also a, a valid pertinent negative that we should make sure that we're documenting in our notes, isn't it? No palpable face pain, particularly in patients that meet that age criteria. Yeah. And, and to be honest, uh, like, I mean, some of my colleagues will go as far as anyone over the age of 50 with a headache, they'll run an ESR on and their blood's an ED. What's an ESR? So an ESR is erythrocyte sedimentation rate. It's basically where we look to see how fast erythrocytes settle in some blood. And then it gives us an indication of how much inflammation there is, you know, in the blood. And, and therefore we can kind of tell whether someone has a inflammatory process ongoing. So it's kind of a non-specific test. It's like a CRP, but it just gives us an idea that there is an inflammatory process going on in the body. So it's kind of used as part of the diagnostic process for GCA, because that is a vasculitis, which is inflammation of the vasculature. 
And so moving on then to glaucoma, what do you want to say about glaucoma? What should we should we know about that? So glaucoma is effectively uh, raised intraocular pressure because fluid can't drain out of the anterior chamber of the eye. And obviously this will keep causing a pressure rise uh, and eventually that will, like it does you know, in the brain when we think about herniation, eventually that will start to compress structures which is going to affect our vision. So really important uh, condition to identify. Pain is normally localised to the eye, but it can be so severe that people kind of associate it with a frontal headache. Uh, It's unilateral usually on one side, but it's just worth considering in those patients that present with frontal headaches. Presumably they're going to have visual changes on that side that we pick up and they're going to be towards the older range range. Yeah, so they're going to be normally older patients. They get um, severe kind of ocular pain. The eye can be uh, red. They'll get blurry or hazy vision often around the peripheries. They they often keep their central vision for a little while. Headache, as we said, nausea and vomiting. They sometimes see halos uh, and, and kind of that's because of like corneal edema. Their pupils might dilate a little bit. So it's just worth uh, kind of keeping an eye out for. Cool. And so then the last thing that we probably need to talk about and consider is head injury. So patients that have had a head injury previously, it can be normal to have an element of mild headache post head injury, and that can last for some time. But it should be mild and it should respond to simple analgesics. So if this is worsening, it's progressive or is presenting to us as particularly severe, then this isn't normal. We need to give that some further investigation. So hopefully this is something that most people will be quite attuned to if it presents to us, obviously. But the risk and the danger here is that a patient presents to us with a headache and the head injury was so long ago or it was considered so minimal and incidental that it's not reported to us outwardly so this is something that we need to ask about and it's a pertinent negative that we need to document okay so that's a whole host of secondary headaches that we need to consider and it's by no means an exhaustive list but it's the ones that we think are probably worth knowing about and worth considering in an emergency setting we'll recap those red flag features at the end of the podcast. But now let's go on to talk about primary headaches. And the two main ones that we definitely need to do justice here are migraine and tension type headache. So I'll take tension headaches. And Simon, are you happy to take migraines? Yeah, absolutely. I'll uh, I'll, I'll take migraine. I do have a question for you, Josh, which I found really interesting when preparing for this. Do you think that tension headaches or migraine headaches are the most are, are the more common of the primary headaches. Which one do you think is more common? Uh, well, I'll play ball because I've got the same notes that you have in front of me. But I think it's tension headaches, Simon, because that's what all the textbooks say. Yeah, that's what I wanted you to say. Even the BASH guidelines say that it's more more common. But actually, every single bit of research I've done otherwise and listening to kind of headache specialists and neurologists that specialize in headaches and GPs that specialize in headaches actually now think that it's probably the other way around and migraines are more common and what they're actually seeing is people that are diagnosed with tension headaches that actually have migrainous features that just haven't been identified properly 
So um, yeah, I found this really interesting for my learning that migraine is actually much more common and tension is more rarer than we thought. Well, it's not it's not rare, but it's more rarer than we thought compared to migraine. So well, it, it, it's the one that we you know it's the, it's the default go to, isn't it? Once you've excluded red flags, then then it's probably a tension headache, isn't it? Is normally what gets said. But that's interesting. Let I'll I'll go on and talk a bit about tension headaches then, and then we can talk about how migraines are different. So tension headaches are the second most common type of headache after migraine, it would seem. Um, there's a roughly a 42% lifetime prevalence. So nearly one in two people are going to have some form of tension headache in their lifetime. But depending on which evidence you read, 0.5% to 4.8% of these are going to be chronic tension type effects. So up to nearly 5% of people will have uh, a, a chronic element to tension headaches. And they're typically characterized as a mild to moderate pain, but typically not a severe headache uh, that's bilateral, often described as a pressing or tightening vice-like band around the front of the head. Now, they're often associated with stress or tiredness, and up to 50% of migraine sufferers will develop them as a background headache in between migraines. They typically develop slowly over hours to days, and sleep is rarely disturbed by them. So it would be atypical for patients to be woken by this pain. As I said, it's a it's a non-pulsating pressure. So it's a, a constant pressure that's often there. It'll be midway up the pain scale. It's bilateral, so it's not obviously one-sided, and it lacks the migraineous features that Simon's going to come on to talk about later. It's not worsened by physical activity, and that's a key diagnostic feature of tension headaches. And the duration of the pain is variable from person to person. So it can range anywhere from half an hour to an hour uh, up to several days. And it's often very rare for these type of headaches to be truly disabling. So patients will generally be able to crack on with their activities of daily life, although they'll be uncomfortable with it. Getting around, cooking for yourself, getting things in and out of the dishwasher doesn't typically make this headache worse. And obviously, they are self-limiting. So all of the time, these headaches will resolve themselves with some gentle over-the-counter analgesia and rest. So Simon, how is that different to the most common type of headache, which is a migraine? So migraine comes from the Latin hemicrania, which was corrupted to migrania owing to its classic unilateral pain presentation. But actually, this is something that really threw me for a long time in my career. I have always been taught that migraine is a unilateral headache, um, which has regularly put me off diagnosing it because I didn't think it could be bilateral. And this is actually false. Migraines can be unilateral, but they can also definitely be bilateral. And it's actually quite common for them to be bilateral. When patients describe the quality of their pain, they describe it as a pulsating type pain that is moderate to severe in quality. It's very unlikely that a migraine is going to be mild pain. So we're thinking those really painful headaches. It's often associated with other features. Again, nausea and vomiting is really common. And then we need to think about photophobia, which is obviously light sensitivity, phonophobia, which is sound sensitivity. The, the possibility of an aura. Now you can have migraine with aura and you can have migraine without aura. Aura is a prodromal symptom. So this can be flashing lights or floaters or weird noises. There are 
significant amounts of different types of aura and they can be quite individual to the patient. So it's worth asking the patient, do you get aura? Patients will often tell you, I knew I was going to get a migraine because I started to get this symptom. Some of those can be quite concerning. So in the terms of like hemiplegic migraine, a patient may have weakness with their migraine. That being said, as we said earlier, I think unless a patient definitively knows they have hemiplegic migraine and they tell you, no, I always get this weakness, I would never be treating that as a migraine until proven otherwise I would be conveying that to hospital and I have blue lighted someone having a migraine into a recess department only to be told by the stroke consultant who came down, who I think had been called in quite crossly, this is clearly a, a, a migraine, a hemiplegic migraine. You know what? I'll, I'll take that one. I would much rather that patient be there than, than, than not when we're not sure and the patient doesn't have a diagnosis and, and wasn't sure them themselves they, they thought they were having a stroke and i think that that's the, the key feature here with the headache with neurological symptoms such as uh, hemiplegia and weakness don't think anyone would blame you if that's a first presentation for, for to taking that to hospital not all migraines need to go to hospital and if you have a a good history that's reassuring and hasn't got any red flags or the patient has uh, hemiplegia but knows that they have hemiplegic migraines and, and can tell you that then that's also fine to, to non-convey but uh, yeah I don't think you should feel worried about conveying a patient with red flag symptoms if there is an uncertainty over the diagnosis. So the migraine patients these are the ones they want a dark room they want quiet and they want rest which is in stark contrast to what we're, we'll talk about shortly, which is cluster headaches. The duration of migraine ranges from between 4 to 72 hours. There are certain subtypes of migraine that are worth thinking about, such as menstrual migraine. So these are female patients, obviously, that due to estrogen level changes, it can bring on a migraine. So if you inquire about, you know, do you only get these migraine headaches or do you only get these headaches around the time of your the time of your period, then that might be an indicator for a, a menstrual migraine. And there's often concurrent diagnosis with things like IBS, anxiety and depression, and fibromyalgia uh, as other conditions. Reassuringly, the BASH guidelines show us that when there's a new clinic diagnosis of migraine, this is almost always correct in about 98% of patients when they meet the International Headache Society's criteria for migraine, which will stick in the show notes. And you've conveniently glanced over the pathophysiology of migraine, Simon. So what causes it? Uh, you had to ask that question, didn't you, Josh? So basically, it's really, really complex, and it would probably take an entire podcast of its own right to go through all of it in depth. But the cause isn't always clear. There used to be a theory that it was related oh, to blood a, vessels. That's a cheap get-out move. I'm going to give you an answer, but you used <laughs> to think it was related to, to blood vessels in the brain becoming narrower and going into spasm, but it didn't account for all the symptoms. So they kind of reevaluated that, and now they think it's a combination of the fact that there are some chemical processes in the brain that increase the activity and cause uh, like neuro excitability and this causes confusing signals in the brain the exact changes in brain chemicals aren't known that well there's lots of theories that are discussed 
really we're not really sure why people with migraine develop these changes but obviously something triggers them in this chemical imbalance that sets off a migraine attack so i think they now feel that it's a combination of some neural excitability components and some vascular components that are combined together to make migraine symptoms but yeah i think the bottom answer is it's all theory they don't really know that well all right i'll let you off with that so uh, after that cluster of a um, pathetic example of pathophysiology for migraine, Josh, do you want to talk to us about the cluster headaches, which are part of the trigeminal autonomic cathologies? That is a terrible pun. First, Alex, last week doing the trying to merge in on my puns, and now you. Okay, so trigeminal autonomic cathologies. This is a term that that is conveniently shortened to TACs to describe a group of headaches. Now, the most common of these is cluster headache, although it's still very rare. But TACs is a is a term used to describe a group of headaches with prominent autonomic features and a shared pathophysiology. So uh, this is often talked about with cluster headaches. There's paroxysmal hemicrania, there's hemicrania continua, short-lasting neurologiforms, sooners, Lots of things in the uh, in the bash guidance, but I'm basically just going to talk about cluster headaches because of all those very rare ones, that is the most common. So as I say, the, this group of headaches that earns them their name, trigeminal autonomic cephalgias, generally present with an element of autonomic features. So this will be an element of lacrimation from the eyes, conjunctival injection, so red eyes, ptosis, meiosis or typically rhinorrhea ear and nasal congestion. So these are quite common features. They are unilateral headaches, and they're generally localised around the eye, forehead, or scalp area. So talking about cluster headaches, because that's probably the thing that most people have heard about, and it's definitely uh, a term that is first to rear its head when we talk about headaches, and that could suggest to you that they're quite a common type of headache. And in fact, I think people often confuse cluster headaches with tension headaches. People assume cluster headaches means you get clusters of pain in the head, whereas that's wrong. It's to do with their presentation. So cluster headaches are rare and they affect around one in a thousand people. Anyone can be affected, but approximately 80% of sufferers are male. Most of these are smokers and most of them are between the ages of 20 and 40. Now, my pathophysiology section is really easy because it's genuinely not known what causes cluster headaches. And that's not a get out of jail free card, Simon. It's convenient uh, for you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's genuinely not known what causes these headaches, but they are very common in the autumn and spring. So most patients will start to develop these clusters in the autumn and spring times. And there's a theoretical possibility that light exposure has an element to play here. In some people, cluster headaches can be triggered by drinking alcohol or an extreme increase in temperature, such as from exercising or hot weather. And as I say, they, they are present with a supraorbital frontal pain on one side. And this is severe pain. To give you an idea of how severe within the cluster headache community, these are sometimes termed suicide headaches because just of the severity and all-consuming pain that they cause for their patients. So it would not be uncommon for you to find one of your patients suffering from cluster headaches sobbing because of the pain. And quite a lot of them 
reports hitting their heads in frustration because of this unrelenting pain. Now, the headaches occur in clusters, generally for around 6 to 12 weeks of the year, which gives them their name. So the, the attacks of the headache tend to be clustered together. They tend to appear at the same time every day, often at night. It's not unusual for these patients to be woken from sleep, normally one to two hours after them going to bed. And the attacks generally last under an hour, but it can be as many as three hours. Pain may be relieved or eased by pacing around. And as Simon said before, in stark contrast to our migraine patients who want to sit in a dark room and not move, cluster headache patients are generally quite restless and will be pacing around and doing quite a lot of moving to try and get their mind off the pain. However, similar to migraine patients, they can still have photo and phonophobia and nausea and vomiting can be quite common. Now, so far, we haven't really talked about management, which we'll do for the other types of headaches later. But management for this group of patients can be quite difficult. It's important to bear in mind if patients are presenting to you meeting the above description and this is their first presentation, they need to have sinister causes excluded first. This isn't something that you would generally diagnose in the emergency setting because these are going to be patients presenting with a severe headache, likely their most painful headache. And we need to exclude some of those concerning secondary causes such as subarachnoid hemorrhage. However, what you might be called out in is the early diagnosis phase where this might be a patient's fourth or fifth headache and they're calling you out of desperation. So it's important to understand that the presentation doesn't necessarily always require hospital. The pain responds reasonably well to triptan, so the patients may have been prescribed sumatriptan, and symptoms can be eased by high-flow oxygen. So that might be something that we want to try pre-hospitally, and we may find that patients have their own oxygen bottles and oxygen masks if they've been diagnosed with this condition by a specialist. And as might be quite obvious to you, these patients will require specialist referral for management and ongoing treatment. So that's cluster headaches. Like I say, this isn't really something that we're going to be diagnosing on, a, on an initial presentation ourselves. And it's important not to confuse that with the starkly different tension type headache. So there are other trigeminal autonomic cephalgias, but I'm not going to talk about them here because they are very rare and it's definitely not things that we're likely to be diagnosing ourselves patients that do have them will probably be able to tell us all about them at the time. So I'm going to move on to our last primary headache that we're going to talk about and this is going to be primary exertional headaches and there's one specific type of exertional headache that I want to talk about in detail in a second but generally exertional headaches originate from exercise. Typically they are a low ache and it's thought to be from increased strain on blood vessels in the head. And they'll typically subside with the cessation of exercise. But it's important to understand that some of these patients may have severe headaches and some of these patients may fall into that thunderclap onset headache that we talked about at the start. So if we do get headaches presenting to us where exercise is related to the onset, this is a red flag if it's a first presentation. And those patients, again, need to go to A&E to have concerning secondary causes ruled out. Now, the one that I wanted to talk about, because I've seen a number of these as patients in my own practice, is the sexual headache or the orgasmic headache. Now, these can be divided into three main types of headache, the dull type headache, the postural type headache, and the explosive type headache. No giggling, Simon. Uh, and the explosive type headache is the most common uh, sexual or orgasmic headache, and it represents 70% of these presentations. 
As the name suggests, it's a sudden onset headache at or near the point of orgasm and seems to have a lifetime prevalence of around 1%. However, that may be more due to people not coming forwards. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, that was awful. It has a typically bimodal age distribution. So there's a spike at the 20 to 24 year mark and there's a second spike at the 35 to 44 year mark. And the common feature in all cases is an intense pain in the first five to 15 minutes, thereafter gradually subsiding. Generally, the location of the pain is bilateral, but nausea, phonophobia, photophobia are all uncommon. Now, clearly, it's important to understand that this is not something that we would diagnose on a first presentation and secondary causes absolutely must be excluded first. So if we have a patient presenting with a severe headache during sexual intercourse or after orgasm, they absolutely must get a CT head to exclude intracranial hemorrhage. And it's highly likely that the first presentation of these headaches may involve 999, either coming from the patient themselves or from a panicked partner. Although this might be a benign primary headache, it's important to bear in mind that coitus is a heavy precipitant for subarachnoid hemorrhage. So we'll link to a study that looked at patients with arteriovenous malformations and saccular aneurysms, and between 4 and 12% of the subarachnoid hemorrhages in that patient population, their bleed was precipitated by sexual intercourse. So these are absolutely not cases to be missed. And as I said, I've had a reasonable amount of these cases in in my practice. Some of them were this primary headache, but I've had a number of subarachnoid hemorrhages that presented in cardiac arrest as a result of presumably an aneurysm bursting during intercourse. I think we've talked about a number of secondary headaches and primary headaches fairly extensively. Simon, do you want to talk to us about the management of these primary headaches, which we haven't really covered. So let's talk about the management of migraine and the management of tension type headaches. So management principles are relatively uh, simple. Obviously, we need to make a decision that these are primary headaches, rule out the red flags. And as a result, if we can control the patient's pain, they're probably going to be non-conveyed. Analgesia that we want to think about includes paracetamol. So Traditionally, this will obviously be um, oral paracetamol if the patient hasn't already taken this. But I think it's worth mentioning that if, especially in migraine, if the patient does have nausea or vomiting, we could consider gaining IV access, giving an IV bolus of our paracetamol, maybe with some antiemetics or some fluids, and then, you know, removing the cannula and still leaving someone at home. I think that's perfectly acceptable practice. Paracetamol, be that oral or IV, is a good start. We then probably want to combine that with uh, either an NSAID or aspirin. So NSAIDs, ibuprofen, so probably 400 milligrams of ibuprofen or a longer acting, so like naproxen, if this is prescribed to the patient already. We can consider aspirin, so a 900 milligram dose. Obviously, we normally give 300 milligrams for ACS, so this is kind of a a much higher dose, which is kind of standard practice in analgesias listed in the BNF. It's an over-the-counter medication, so the patient could probably buy and take their own. Obviously, with NSAIDs and aspirin, we need to think about uh, bleeding risk. So we're not going to use this, obviously, if we have any concerning features of subarachnoid hemorrhage or one of the other bleeds. But um, 
hopefully by this point we're uh, looking at our primary headaches. So yeah, uh, NSAIDs or aspirin. Likewise, we're not going to use aspirin in under 16 due to the risk of Ray syndrome. Antiemetics is is a is a good thing to talk about. So I routinely give all of my patients that present with migraine an antiemetic, even if they're not feeling nauseous or vomiting, because it's just been shown to be really helpful. Ideally, this should be metoclopramide in the over twenties due to um, the risk of uh, extra pyramidal side effects. We don't want to use it in under twenties. But yeah, metoclopramide is a really good antiemetic to use. So if your service does still carry metoclopramide, then then this is what I would I would go to as long as it's not contraindicated, or obviously um, on Dantatron if, if if you don't. Can you give metoclop IM? You can, can't you? Yes. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Because um, most of my experiences with on Dantatron and absolutely give them a an IM dose of of the medication. You know. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, if you have got access because you're giving your IV paracetamol, you can obviously give that IV as well. And then also IV fluids, you can leave someone home after a dose of IV fluids. So like IV fluids is mainly just to rehydrate your patient. It's just this combinations of treatment that, you know, I've been shown to help. Dehydration can trigger migraine. So it's sometimes worth just giving someone a, a, a quick bolus to rehydrate them. Obviously, we need to assess for you things like, you know, heart failure and fluid overload. If they have those sort of symptoms, then we don't want to give IV fluids. But, you know, a, a young person who's just suffering from migraine, it, it's not going to do them any harm. That's kind of, this is, this is just kind of the package, isn't it? That yeah. uh, if you take these patients into yeah. hospital, they you often see them sitting in a slightly quiet section of the A&E department with their light off, having had paracetamol, high dose of aspirin they're probably on a high flow o2 mask and they're having a bag of fluids after also having some antiemetic and and they kind of just throw that package at people and it makes a lot of people better and the question is which which of that cocktail was was the main factor all bits 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 of all of them all bits of all of Um, it yeah yeah and you know and like like josh was saying is oxygen is another really good one we talked josh talked about it being used as a cluster headache treatment and that is what it's used for it's really effective in cluster headaches. But from my anecdotal experience, I've, I've given it to people with migraine as well, and it, it, it seems to work, whether it's just the fact that there are other stuff, as you've just said, Josh is working, and I'm just throwing the package at them. Probably not that evidence-based, but uh, I know lots of ED clinicians that do it. So I do give high-flow oxygen to all my primary headaches that I am that you know I want to improve their, their pain. You know, lots of people, we, we have to think about why is this person phoned an ambulance in the first place? I mean, that's a big red flag in itself. You know, this person suffers with migraines all the time. Why have they called an ambulance? Now, that might be because something's changed and we need to really be careful about the red flag features there. And then obviously that might warrant a conveyance for a worry about a secondary headache. But it might be that they phone someone like 111 because they've started vomiting too quickly haven't been able to keep down their prescribed analgesia and actually by us coming and giving them some iv medication to get their symptoms under control we can help get back on top of this and then they can carry on with their normal prescripted regime you might even find they have metoclopramide or antiemetics that they've been prescribed by their gp and they might even have triptans so you know if they haven't got triptans you can consult primary care for for a new for a new prescription of triptans, but if they do, then that's that's good to encourage them to take because it's prescribed. Opiates. Opiates is something that I think we need to to talk about. Now, when I was on the road, it used to actually be a contraindication to give morphine to severe headache. 
I think that contraindication has been removed and it's now a caution. Obviously, these patients that are, you know, in severe pain, you know, it might be an option, but I would avoid opiates if at all possible, even when handling the severe pain of migraine. One, because we've shown it's not, not that useful. Two, it has negative properties that we don't want. And three, it can actually lead to medication overuse headache, which can make headaches worse. And it's not the only medication that can do that. You know, paracetamol, NSAIDs, tryptans can also add to that. But opiates seem to be, a, a, you know, a, a much worse, have a much worse effect on causing medication overuse headache. That's kind of my package of care for primary headaches. So just to summarize that, paracetamol, plus or minus uh, NSAIDs and aspirin. And then, you know, your antiemetics, maybe some fluids, maybe some oxygen and avoid opiates and consider if it's already prescribed or whether you need to speak to um, out of hours or primary care to get a tryptan. Once we've hopefully treated our patient, if we can get their pain under control, then we can, you know, consider non-conveyance. But as always, any patient with non-conveyance, we need to safety net them. Josh, you want to just quickly cover safety netting of headaches for us? Yeah, so obviously we've done our safety netting podcast and uh, that's going to be my main reference point. So if you've not listened to our safety netting podcast, go go and have a little listen to that because that is generally the good pro forma to use to uh, to safety net all of our patients. But as always, we need to let our patients know what we think is wrong with them what we expect the course of their headache to to be so how long we would expect it to to last for the treatment that we would expect them to do and how we want them to get better and then when we want them to seek further care so that'll be the further care for the normal progression of the illness we may want them to just consult with primary care anyway as simon's just mentioned to get some scripts or to get some some follow-up most importantly we need them to know when to call us back if we're either wrong in our initial impression or if they start to deteriorate. So we need to go through with them all of those red flags that we will have excluded earlier. So like we've said, thunderclap onset, worst headache in their life. If the headache's waking them from sleep, fever, confusion, drowsiness, unable to keep food or fluids down, any obvious focal neurology. And obviously we need to explain that to the patient. We can't just write that down and expect them to understand it changes in vision, changes in gait, uh, all of those red flags, which we need to go through with the patient and we need to leave them written advice for that. So that's safety netting them. As I say, we go into that in far more detail in our safety netting podcast. Okay, so let's summarize. We've talked about the different presentations of headaches. Our job as emergency clinicians is to identify whether or not this is a primary headache or whether or not there might be concerning secondary causes for this headache. We need to assess our patients for red flags using a comprehensive history take and detailed neurological exam. Those patients that are presenting to us with a thunderclap onset headache, if they're over 50 with a new type of headache they've not had before, patients presenting with headaches that have woken them from sleep, changes in patterns to previously well-established headaches, patients with fever, confusion, drowsiness or a rash, those with focal neurological symptoms such as weaknesses that can be seen in hemiplegic migraines or in more concerning secondary headaches, 
Patients with visual changes or tenderness to the scalp or temples. Patients with new types of headaches with known primary cancers. And patients with a previous history of head injury are all examples of red flags that we might want to investigate further for concerning secondary causes. If we can't find any concerning red flags, then our patient may be presenting with a primary headache. The most common of these is likely to be a migraine. These are typically unilateral, but it's important to remember that they can be bilateral and it's quite common that they are. They're generally moderate to severe pains and often pulsatile, with associated nausea and vomiting and photophobia. Equally, it could be a tension type headache, which is the second most common presentation. These are generally constant frontal pains that are non-pulsatile with a mild to moderate pain level. And crucially, they're not to be confused with cluster headaches. And finally, we've talked about the management that we might want to offer some of these primary headaches, ensuring that our patients are well analgized with, with paracetamol and potentially higher doses of oral aspirin. We're gonna try and make sure that these patients have an antiemetic on board and evaluate whether or not they could benefit from some intravenous fluids. None of that means that they need to go to a hospital, however, and we might be able to decannulate these patients and leave them safely at home. But if we're doing that, we need to make sure we do it with absolutely solid worsening advice and a clear safety net. But that's all for this month. Thanks very much for listening, and hopefully that's been of use to you. As always, there's going to be our links and further reading resources on the article on the website. And what we're going to do is put up uh, a number of videos there, one of a really good and detailed neurological exam and a couple of really useful videos from the BASH guidelines that can really help to further your learning. If you've missed the update to our podcast last month, make sure to go back and check that out. So episode 25, if you didn't hear the addendum that we've made, we've made a slight adjustment to some of the advice that we're putting there. And if you've not heard that yet, you can go and find that uh, addendum on the website on the Epistaxis page. But thanks very much for listening and join us next month for a new topic.